Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Congressman Fred Upton is going to join us today to talk all things Washington, including the new congressional map that dramatically changes his West Michigan district and what place he occupies in a Republican Party that is still very much in the grip of former President Donald Trump. Then we're going to catch up with Aaron Reddish, an expert on Russia here at Wayne State University, about the new tensions between that country and Ukraine. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, it's really great that you have joined us. So much going on in Washington these days, and 2022 will be a really pivotal year for politics and democracy here in Michigan and across the entire country. We're going to hold our first elections under the new political maps that were created by our first independent redistricting commission. And public officials' actions and decisions over the next several months could set us on a course toward preserving American democracy or allowing it to unravel. We're going to start the show today with someone who has been thinking quite a bit about all of these things and who will be making a lot of important decisions himself for his own political future soon, as well as the decisions that he needs to make about the future of our state and nation. Fred Upton is a Republican from St. Joseph. He represents Michigan's 6th Congressional District, and it's great to have him back with us here on Detroit Today. Fred, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks, Stephen. It is always a pleasure to be with you. Hope, yes. Hope things are good on your side of the state. Uh, <laughs> as, okay. as we look at lake effect snow here. In I was going to say, what's the weather like over there? I know it yeah, can be really snowy. Out this time as they head to Kalamazoo here, I know I ninety four has got some issues. So yeah. some schools closed, whatever. But that's winter. That's why I drive a jeep. <laughs> uh, there you go. Right, <laughs> and, and get through anything. And it's a stick, so I love it. I love it. <laughs> okay, so uh, as I said, there's a lot of change afoot in Washington and here in Michigan, and I think a great place to start. Talking Talking about that change is the change in your district that will take place, uh, presumably, once the the new congressional maps are approved, finally approved, survive court challenge here uh, in in Michigan. You would, if you ran for re-election, you would live in the new fourth congressional district. So I guess the question is, are you planning to run in that new district? Well, it's a very good question, but today is not the day to get an answer. <laughs> You're not going to uh, answer it. Or, yeah, no. So, the uh, but we'll make it. You know, it's as you said that there is a court challenge. I don't know. I would imagine that we will hear relatively soon as to whether it has standing or not. I'm not a sure. lawyer, but I know it was filed uh, about a week ago, and so we'll see what the judges say. Uh, there was a similar case down in Ohio, and uh, the maps were thrown out. Again, yes, they were. Commission, and so it's um, they, they have a little different process than we do here, but they were thrown out. So we'll find out soon whether these maps hold. But, yeah, I would say that this, uh, you know, I, and you've been a student of this for a while. Ten years ago, we also lost a congressional seat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a different process. It was the state legislature, and under Republican governor, Republican House and Senate, state Senate, uh, Republican Supreme Court, uh, they came up with a 7-7 map that the Democrats didn't complain about. No mm-hmm. suit was filed. Um, <laughs> the system worked. Uh, this is, I'll call it an independent commission, but they really messed up the lines uh, pretty bad, particularly over, over here. My my home county, Berrien, which is a pretty big county relative yeah. to the state, uh, is split for the first time since statehood. Uh, and you have a district now. So, you know, I live in St. Joe, and uh, much of St. Joe 
the MSA, Metropolitan Statistical Area, is now in Wahlberg's district mm-hmm. uh, under the, the map. The old seven. Uh, and yeah. our big, you know, the, allegedly they were supposed to look at communities of interest. Well, we have some real communities of interest over here, St. Joe Benton Harbor, St. Joe Stevensville, uh, all contiguous communities. Uh, Stevensville now, you know, Lakeshore Schools, uh, pretty big. It's actually bigger than St. Joe City Schools, uh, where I went. Lakeshore is now in Wahlberg's district, and so in that district goes from Lake Erie to Lake Michigan, 200 miles long, 25 or 30 miles wide, mm-hmm. uh, about two miles south of where I live. Uh, <laughs> my my first job was at a restaurant. It's now in Wahlberg's district. Um, it, it's really, it's really quite a bit, and it's now Berrien County, which has always been it's, uh, a third of the district, uh, is now seven percent of the district. So, a lot of changes. We'll see if it stands, and uh, we'll make a decision one way or another in the, you know coming days i suppose but, so so um, i do i do want to talk to you just a little more about the, the kind of things that are figuring into y- your personal calculus there but but I, I i hear you to be saying that you think this commission did uh, made a hash of uh, of all of this I, I i wonder um if you if you perhaps don't buy the 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 logic that was used here which was that if you removed overt political interest from the process, or at least uh, deprioritize that, you would come up with a map that respected other factors uh, uh, more. And and of course, one of the factors is communities of interest, but that actually was not as prioritized as it as it had been in the past either. But but do I hear you to say that you think this map is 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 not? Well, it, um, it's, go ahead. it's not the way I would have drawn it, and I, you know, the voters approved it. And of course, who's for gerrymandering? Not, you know, that that term is a, a pretty negative word. Sure. But our district before was, in essence, a perfect square. <laughs> it, it didn't look like a mosquito mm-hmm. uh, when you laid it down on, on the map of Michigan. You had communities of interest uh, that were connected uh, lots of different ways, and had been for many decades. And uh, all of a sudden now. You know, whether you look at the congressional map for Berrien County or you look at the state rep map, I mean, it is it is uh, quite a bit different and, and quite a bit different than what it had been before. And again, you know, 10 years ago when we also lost the congressional seat, uh, I, I thought, you know, everyone thought since no suits were filed that it was uh, relatively fair. Now suits are filed on this. And again, we'll see what the judges say. But I would expect a pretty quick reaction one way or another, or else it may be even as some other states have done, you know, keep this map for this cycle and then change it, go back to the drawing board, in essence, uh, for two years down the road. We'll see. But I hmm. would expect that some, you know, if we're going to keep these timelines, uh, filing, I think, is uh, like the 18th of April or something like that, the yeah. traditional August primary. If you're going to keep those dates and allow people to circulate petitions and district numbers and all of that it's probably got to be some stamp of approval or disapproval literally within the next uh i don't know 10 days or so i would imagine mm. we'll see how quick they act so i'm looking at an analysis of these these new congressional boundaries and uh your old your old district uh was a district that that favored uh former president donald trump um by about four and a half points. Um, and the new district, District 4, which, as you point out, takes some communities essentially out of uh, out of the old district. I mean, it, it shrinks in geographic area, uh, but but it's still at, uh, a plus four um, Trump advantage, well, so a little less. So I guess I'm, my question to you is whether this is about politics, which don't seem to be changing a whole lot, or is it about the other parts of representation? In other words, are you worried about having to represent a different kind of area than, than you well, have? It's, well, it's it's dramatically different in terms of new people. So Berrien mm-hmm. County, which again has normally been about a third, is now 7%. Uh, Ottawa County, where we had none, I had this, the Allegan part 
Elgin County part of, of Holland, because it bleeds uh, into, into, into Elgin County, is now uh, almost a third of the district. Uh, so we didn't have Battle Creek at all. So in essence, there's about 250, and we lose whole counties, uh, St. Joe County and Cass County, Three Rivers, Sturgis, Cassopolis. Um, they're, they're now in Wahlberg's district. And so mm-hmm. there's about, I don't know, uh, 250,000 new people uh, in the district uh, that had been a perfect square before. And I would also note that, you know, two years ago, back in 2020, uh, I won our district. Uh, a lot of money was spent against us. It's a competitive district, uh, one with 50.2% back mm-hmm. in 2018. Again, a competitive district. Uh, I won by 16 points. Now, I'll confess we had a little bit of a flawed Democratic candidate. But I won by 16 points, and only because I won by 16 points did Trump win our district at all. Uh, I've always outpaced the Republican nominee for president. Uh, Usually only the sheriff beats me. (laughs) And and I have good sheriffs over here. Uh, They they do run under the party affiliation, but both Republican and Democratic sheriffs. But uh, there's not been an election where I haven't run ahead of the nominee, whether it be a John McCain or a Mitt Romney, uh, Ronald Reagan, a Bush or Trump. So we will look forward then, I guess, to you making a decision. Yep, and we'll make <laughs> You've got a couple we'll, weeks, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Got a few more than that, but we'll, we'll make yeah. a decision soon. But it's, yeah. you know, and we'll see again what the, what the judges say. And, um, you know, I'm not quite sure how that process works. They just filed and it's good to be home now for a week. We got a lot of activities and obviously go back for votes uh, next week. We got a pretty busy agenda as well. As you know, the continuing resolution expires the 18th, and Mm -hmm. I just counted up. We have, I think, four full legislative days between now and then, and don't know exactly how this thing is going to play out, but we got a lot of big issues impacting us. I'm working on the CHIPS bill that helps our auto industry and electronics and everything else. Uh, Senate passed it uh, last summer, and it's stalled in the House, and working with Debbie Dingle and others to try and we got a pathway to figure this thing out. But we're also big meetings on Cures 2.0. This is a follow-up to the 21st Century Cures bill that I led when I was chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee. Uh, I had a White House meeting last night as we try to get uh, more more resources to, to find the cures for diseases that impact every family. Yeah. Yeah. So I do want to talk policy now. And I think there there's a number of things, of course, going on, both political and and policy minded that that put you in in interesting situations. Um, Let's start here. You received death threats recently uh, after you voted for the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Um, uh, Talk about why you voted for it. And and again, um, talk about the reaction that you that you get sometimes uh, from, I guess, constituents. I don't know. Maybe they aren't even people who live in your district, uh, but people who get upset when, as a Republican, you support uh, uh, you know measures that are are forwarded by Democrats. Well, a couple of things, uh, as you know, and we've talked about this before. I'm. There's a caucus called the Problem Solvers Caucus, uh, 60 members, mm-hmm. equally divided, Republicans and Democrats. A uh, number of folks here from Michigan, in it, Peter Meyer, Slotkin, uh, Debbie Dingell, Haley Stevens, myself. But it's 60 members, and Governor uh, uh, of Maryland uh, called us uh, in to meet with him last April, uh, the, the key leaders of the Problem Solvers Caucus and no labels. So we had about... Uh, two dozen or so Republicans and Democrats, House members, senators, Joe Manchin, Mitt Romney, number of governors, a uh, number of outside economists. And we talked about what is it, what are our infrastructure needs and, and where do we go? We haven't passed a major infrastructure bill in, I don't know, 10 years. And we hammered out a bill, a proposal, and traditional infrastructure needs included roads, ports, airports broadband, energy security, and we had just gone through 
the uh, the problems in Texas with the cold weather that froze the pipelines there, and, and soon to be hadn't happened yet the Colonial Pipeline, the the, the hack of the the gas pipeline in the East Coast. And we we came up with what issues should be included, and we also decided that unlike the COVID packages under either Trump or Biden. Uh, that we were not going to simply add to the debt or the deficit, but we were going to pay for it. We're going to find offsets, pay for it for any of the new spending. And that bill was the one that moved through the Senate and passed 69 to 30 last August. Now, Mm -hmm. just before passage, former President Trump came out against it. And in essence, he said, wait, (laughs) wait till I'm back. Uh, I'll get you a better bill, a better bill, a better deal. Uh, his proposal when he was president was two trillion, so almost twice as much as this one. Had no pay fors, and it didn't go anywhere. Not a hearing, not a bill uh, introduced, but that was his idea. But in essence, he said, "Wait till I guess what 2025." Well, mm-hmm. we can't wait. <laughs> this was bipartisan, uh, and it started at a Republican governor's house, Larry Hogan in Annapolis. And it passed uh, with even Lindsey Graham, Trump's favorite senator for sure, uh, voting for it. So, but then it got tied up with the Build Back Better plan, the massive, you know, social spending bill, uh, BBB as the acronym for it, and uh, the progressives, the AOCs of the world, and others said we want these two bills attached because otherwise we won't get the BBB, and that debate went on for a couple of months. And finally, in November, we, the Problem Solvers Caucus, uh, were the leaders in, in freeing it from this large, much larger package. And President Biden, Biden signed it into law, and the BBB has gone nowhere. Social spending that, frankly, would have probably never gone away. But that's a whole another different argument. But in the meantime, you know, you, you saw the news uh, last week. We finally have got the money now for the the new lock up in the in the Sioux, uh, the Polock. Uh, almost half a billion dollars is going to come from the infrastructure bill, mm-hmm. and we know the needs for infrastructure like broadband and highways. I mean, that's what Governor Whitmer ran on four years ago: fix the damn roads. Uh, we want them fixed. This is going to be more money for roads and highways. This is going to be more money. You know, for uh, you know, we all know about the issue of Flint with with uh, lead. Yeah, but a lot of communities have this, uh, certainly in my, my district, Benton Harbor and other communities uh, uh, as well. These lead lines need to be replaced. Well, guess what? There's $15 billion in this bill for that, mm-hmm. and we're seeing the work proceed now. And at the end of the day, there were some that tried to make this a very partisan debate. But in fact, it started as a bipartisan bill, and it never really changed until former President Trump came out against it saying, Wait till I'm back. Well, a bunch of us thought we can't wait. We got to get this thing done. It's jobs. It's infrastructure. China has spent more in the last three years on cement and infrastructure than we have in the last hundred years. Mm. How are we going to keep up with the rest of the world if we have these crumbling highways and uh, infrastructure needs that uh, nobody in this country wants to see happen? Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, and the, then the backlash. The question. Yeah, the backlash. Yeah. The, the death yeah. I mean, one of the things that that always strikes me is so you mentioned AOC uh, and uh, and other progressives in in the house uh, Rashida Tlaib of course is yep. is all the, uh, I think all the progressives voted against it. Right. But you're but, right. I did. But they get death threats too, right? They get yeah, death they, threats. They do. <laughs> and and they do. Actually I had a funny conversation with one of the progressives. I I had never talked to frankly we just weren't aren't in the same circles and you know not in the same building or the committees or whatever and uh, she had gotten some death threats, and uh, the good news is most of the death threats that I got were from people not only not in my district, but not in Michigan. There were some, but you know most of them, are, you know, someplace else. And um, so, I, you know, CNN. We gave the CNN one of the, you know, we got a lot of them, but we we gave CNN one of the uh, voicemails from someone. We, I guess, people don't know that there's such a thing as voter. Uh, 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 voicemail with caller ID, mm-hmm. but we gave him the the, the tape. <laughs> it sounded 
I think even Debbie Dingo, I said, Debbie, I said, I think this, Debbie came to me and she said, I, I think that's the same color that I get. <laughs> I think it was the guy that huh. came from, from Pennsylvania or someplace, but, um, but it, it used the same, the same words, you know, they used my initials quite a bit, uh, but they, um, uh, same, some of the same voicemail patterns, but it's, you know, seriously, it is an issue that's very, very unfortunate. Uh, I've got a school board member that lives on my street. And you know they're they're getting threats too. I mean this is this is not the democracy that we know. Let's let's win ideas. Let's let's not resort to this stuff. And but it's it's serious. And we referred to some of the calls to law enforcement, and they've made a few visits. I know, and um, mm-hmm. let's hope that the yeah. threats don't become real. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Congressman Fred Upton about uh, some of the policy things that are going on in Washington. We are going to talk about the inquiry into the January 6th insurrection and how he has voted uh, during all of that. We'll also talk about what's going on with Russia and President Biden's response. We want to hear from you on the phones as well. If you have questions for Congressman Fred Upton or uh, about any of the issues that we're talking about, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter or to Facebook and put comments there. We'll try to work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today, I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Fred Upton, a congressman from St. Joseph, who represents Michigan's 6th District in Washington. We're talking about all things Washington right now, a lot lot going on as we get ready for midterm elections later this year. If you want to join the conversation, have a question for the congressman, uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, You can also go to social media and put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, So I I also want to talk about the Protecting Our Democracy Act, which was meant to make sure that something like January 6th of last year, this this insurrection attempt uh, at the Capitol, doesn't happen again. I'd love for you to explain to me why you voted against that. Well, as I recall, there weren't any hearings. Uh, they just moved it forward. Um, you know, I supported the, you know, I, obviously I was there on January 6th. It was a scary day. I was not in the Capitol itself uh, when they were counting the, the ballots, uh, the electoral va- ballots. I was in my office, but I had been walked on the floor earlier that day before we went into session. And I watched the events from my balcony uh, the, in the Rayburn building, uh, overlooking the mall, watching the crowd go down to the White House and then, then walk back. You know, I saw the noise had literally right below my office was where all the, the state troopers and others uh, that came in for reinforcements uh, deployed. Uh, but I supported the the, the commission actually uh, there were th- actually three different proposals. Uh, Speaker Pelosi came with one that was pretty partisan. I think it was nine to four Republican uh, Democrats to Republicans. Uh, it was just her idea. Even the Demo- number of Democrats, particularly in the Problem Solvers Caucus, uh, squawked about that not being uh, exactly fair as a select committee and uh, something that needed to be bipartisan. So she pulled back on that and allowed negotiations between the Republicans and Democrats. Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, uh, offered uh, John Katko, who was the top Republican on the Homeland Security Committee, to actually negotiate with the Democrats. And he came up with, I thought, a pretty fair proposal, equal number of Republicans and Democrats. It was going to finish by the end of the calendar year, 2021. Uh, To issue a subpoena, you had to have at least one Republican and one Democrat uh, move forward on that. An equal number of staff. I mean, it was really set up, I think, similar to uh, the Benghazi Commission that was there before. And um, it was moving forward. And then Trump came out against it, uh, like the night before. 
And at the end of the day, uh, we only had 35 Republicans vote for it. I was one of 35. Uh, I think Peter Meyer was was one of them as as well. Mm-hmm. Passed the House and the Senate with Trump's opposition, even though he said it, as you recall, he did everything totally appropriate uh, with his opposition. They didn't get the 60 votes to get it done. I guess it was going to be bipartisan, bicameral, both House and the Senate had a majority, but it didn't get 60. So. It failed then, and Pelosi then came back with a, a third version, which is what is operating today, not an equal number of Republicans and Democrats, uh, as originally proposed. Um, I voted against that one, but it passed, uh, so it is legitimate. It's only a House committee, and there are two Republicans that sit on that list, Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. And they're the ones that are proceeding. And so it, they, although they're expected to finish this year, the other one would have finished uh, last year. And we'll see what they do and, and how they're moving. They've, I only know from press accounts that they've interviewed some 300-some people. Mm-hmm. Uh, some subpoenas have been issued. And, um, you know, we'll see how this all transpires. But, uh, but, but, but the legislation, the Protecting Our Democracy legislation was aimed at Specifically, uh, stopping some of the things that that led to January sixth. What, what's well, the reason to oppose well, that? Well, let, let's wait for the report to be concluded. Um, let let's see what lessons they learn. You know, when we had a commission uh, on nine eleven, it was an independent commission that was led and based on their recommendations, Congress acted um, to come up with a legislative proposal before the commission finishes might be a little short-sighted and may miss something. So let's let's take the time to do it right. Uh, the, and that gets to a, a broader question that I, that I always like asking you, <laughs> which is <laughs> how, how you fit in the modern Republican Party. I mean, there, 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 are, there are so many elements of it that I know um, – uh, challenge your, your your sensibilities of of uh, what's right and what's fair. I mean, the, the influence of Donald Trump over uh, over our politics, over people in in your party, only seems to grow over time. I, I think uh, I think it's a little surprising two years after he's been out of office that he still has this kind of influence. He could run in twenty twenty four, and and uh, I mean, you would have a, a real challenge i think about whether you might support him for 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 president um talk about how you negotiate all of that and how you can sort of um how you can still say you are a member of the republican party given all of the things that they're doing that i know um you don't you don't really agree with well, I'm going to take you back to a story. I got a, a good friend uh, a good number of years ago who gave me a compass. And he said, Fred, I like your compass. Share this compass with some of your colleagues. Uh, I worked for a great president, Reagan, at the White House back in the 80s. And here was a Republican president working with a Democratic Congress and he got things done. We had some tough times. We were coming out of inflation. We had the Cold War. We had, you know, economic morass. I mean, I mean, a lot of issues. And he was reelected winning 49 states. I mean, states that Republicans, you know, can't touch it, can't get 10 feet with from uh, a poll with, uh, you know, California, New York. He won them all, except for Minnesota, where Walter Mondale was from. And that was my that was my compass, a, a guy that uh, had really good people around him, and he took good ideas, and he had a very good relationship, and he got things done, and the country, you know, thanked him for it. Uh, and you know, he was shot, if you remember, mm-hmm. almost almost died. So I've had, you know, I've served under a number of presidents. Uh, I've known them all, and they call me Fred. I call him Mr. President, but. You know, I'm not afraid to disagree or agree, regardless of party, on a particular issue. And, you know, for with Trump, 
I did not support him in 2016. I, I stayed in, as we said, in our own lane. He was the only candidate of the 17 that ran for a president that I had never met, didn't know, didn't have any experience with. Uh, and I was more of a Kasich, uh, Rubio guy, uh, because I had worked with them both on, you know, for Kasich, he had served in the house a good number of years. He actually, I think, won my district as it, as it turned out. But uh, I stayed in my own lane. We had our own election. And, uh, of course, you know, we saw some surprising things at the end of the Trump campaign. That, uh, But, you know, as, as he served, I supported his economic ideas. Um, you know, the, but, the tax but what do you make was, of, was huge. But what do you make of this, this rise of, and I don't think there's another word for it, of fascist instinct well, I inside agree. the you, Republican you Party? I... I uh, we condemned his language. It wasn't quite the right word when he went after four of my colleagues, telling them to go back to the the place where they were born. Right. Uh, again, not not going to use the language on the on the on the air here, but it was pretty insulting. And you know, I I I voted against it. Paul Mitchell from Michigan spoke strongly against it as well. And you know, the president called me and I said, "Look, this isn't going to go in any." any business, and I happened to talk to a couple of Fortune 500 companies and asked what would happen if some of their top executives did this, they'd be they'd be out looking for a different job. Uh, I'm a big sports fan. <laughs> I got a relative that's an all-star pitcher, Cy Young Award winner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to baseball, and I said, what would happen if something like that happened? And I was recalled that there was a, a player for, I think it was the Dodgers, who or another team, and, and he had some racial, very insensitive uh, gestures. And guess what? He got suspended. <laughs> he lost. He lost hundreds of thousands of dollars, I think, in terms of fines when he got suspended uh, in a World Series game. I mean, that stuff shouldn't go, particularly in an era like today. So, you know, I don't. Ha- I didn't have a problem disagreeing with the president when I thought he was wrong. Just like I don't have, didn't have a problem with with democratic presidents when when they're right particularly when the country needs to pull together and that's it's just who i am that's the the background that i had and um yeah i mean i i listen i i completely understand you know uh, the difficulty of balancing all this stuff and especially when the party takes such a rightward turn as it has yeah and if they want a rubber stamp they got the wrong guy in me yeah yeah Okay, uh, Fred Upton, it's always great to uh, to talk with you here. Uh, make sure that uh, we are the first people you tell yeah. about <laughs> your decision. Even you've been a friend a long time since yeah. I think we met first time at the auto show a lot of years ago, and you know that's certainly an important industry for all of us to pull together on. And yeah. you know it was John Dingle and me and a few others uh, that really worked together to get the auto rescue plan done way back when and saved right. the industry. And it's you can't imagine if we had lost all these jobs. Yeah, never no, would have recovered. The whole world would be a different place, and especially here in Michigan. Uh, Fred, always great to have you. Thanks for for stopping by. You bet. Okay, when we come back, we are going to talk about what is happening with Russia and Ukraine with Wayne State University expert Aaron Radish. Also want to hear from you on the phones. What do you think about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine? Should that be of concern to the United States? And if so, what what should we be doing about it? We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019. WBET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So right now, there are 100,000 Russian troops stationed near that country's border with Ukraine. 
and fears can, can continue to grow that an invasion is maybe just around the corner. The United States has ordered the families of staff at the American embassy in that country to leave the country and is also allowing non-essential embassy employees to leave. Meanwhile, President Biden is considering sending 5,000 troops to Eastern Europe. So what would it mean if Russia invades Ukraine, both for the countries involved, but also for us here in the United States. And why is this something Americans should be paying closer attention to? With me now is someone we turn to often on this show when Russia is involved. Aaron Reddish is a history professor at Wayne State University with a specialization in Soviet and Russian history. Aaron, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about what's going on between Russia and Ukraine right now. Why is Russia building up troops with the very real possibility of using those troops to invade Ukraine? Right. So the uh, kind of the, the short answer is that they're worried that Ukraine is moving into the Western orbit. This has been their fear since uh, the mid-90s. And uh, the Russian government's also worried that NATO is building up, basically encircling uh, Russia on the Western border. Uh, and this has been a long fear that Ukraine um, would join NATO, would join the EU, and there would be, as Putin said, they'd be knocking at the door uh, they'd be right at the doorstep of Russia. So, so there are lots of former Russian Soviet republics that, that border Russia, and many of them seem to have the same kind of impulses that, that Ukraine has, and we don't see Russia invading them. What is it about Ukraine that makes them of particular interest to Putin and to Russia? That is kind of the big question. So, uh, Putin, who is a bit of a history buff, uh, has often actually penned historically inaccurate accounts about how Russia and Ukraine come from the same cradle of Kievan Rus, uh, and that their that their historical legacy, that is the birth of uh, Eastern Orthodox Eastern Orthodox Christianity, come from Kiev, and that they are inseparable, uh, that they are one people. So that's part of it. Um, Putin has said several times that Ukraine is not a nation that is part of, of Russia. This came out in, um, especially in uh, 2000, um, uh, 2004 uh, and then 2008. Uh, so there is something specific about, about Ukraine, um, the fact that they're Slavic, uh, that makes the Kremlin pay special attention to them. They're also the, the largest um, border, uh, you know, separating Russia from Europe. And that's also kind of this idea that there are this bulwark is, is really important. Hmm. So what are the biggest implications if the Russians were to invade Ukraine? And what would it mean for us here in the United States? Of course, the, the, the most uh, significant impact would be in, in Eastern Europe, I would think. Uh, obviously, there would be all kinds of, I think, uh, ripple effects of, of that decision. But obviously, President Joe Biden is also very interested in this and very worried about it. So, so talk about what it would mean if Russia just decides to invade. So this has the potential to be the largest conventional war in Europe since World War II. Um, the second largest kind of military um, exercise in Europe before then was Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014. Uh, so this has the potential to be a, a major uh, a major war, not just possibly between Russia and Ukraine, but its neighbors. And um, then the question is, what will NATO do? So there is the potential there. Um, the most likely scenario is that Russia will not launch an invasion and try to capture Kiev. That just it just doesn't make sense. Um, it's possible that uh, Russia will try to um, annex or uh, recognize uh, the two statelets of the Donbass region and Luhansk. Um, 
but we'll see. I mean, but those in Michigan should be very concerned about this. As you said, not just that this could be a massive European conflict, but um, it will um, change kind of the global politics of kind of possibly moving into a new Cold War. Um, you will see it in your pocketbook because it will increase fuel prices. And uh, Detroit also has one of the largest um, populations of East Europeans in the United States. So many of your listeners will probably have relatives or personal connection to the region. Yeah. Uh, th this idea of a large scale shooting war in Eastern Europe, how, how, how likely is that given the things that you just said about, uh, about history and, and how long it's been since something like that actually happened? Um, so if I said that I knew, uh, I would be lying. Um, and <laughs> no that's one knows, the case. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's, and that's really important that nobody knows. And I, I do not have a link to the Kremlin. I doubt that Putin knows either. Uh, so we just don't know. We know that there are somewhere around a hundred thousand troops, um, circling Ukraine up into Belarus as well. And that there are military exercises going on there now around Belarus, um, so if they're, if they actually, if Russia actually did invade Ukraine and actually try to take over Kiev, then it would be dealing with a, a large scale occupation. And I see this as Putin actually, uh, acting in a, in a state of weakness, uh, that there are domestic concerns, mm -hmm. um, that he's reacting to the West. So the idea that they would be that Russia would be able to occupy Ukraine seems to me unbelievable. Mm. Um, but again, uh, I say this without full knowledge of what's going on uh, inside the halls of the Kremlin. I'm talking with Aaron Reddish, a history professor at Wayne State University, who's got a specialization in Soviet and Russian history. We're talking about what's going on right now between Russia and Ukraine, about 100,000 Russian troops are assembled along the border with Ukraine. No one has said specifically why they're there or what the intent is, but you don't have to be a genius, I think, to read a little into it that uh, this is some sort of threat to Ukraine, perhaps the threat of invasion. If that were to happen, uh, what would that mean in Eastern Europe? What would that mean to us here in the United States. As always, we want to hear from you during the conversation. Are you concerned about what's happening between Russia and Ukraine? And what do you think of the United States response so far? And what do you think the United States response should be if Russia does invade Ukraine? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and to Twitter and put comments there, and we can include you in the conversation uh, that way. Uh, Aaron, I want to put that question to you, what, what you make of President Biden's response so far and what the United States should do if this is indeed an attempt by Russia to, to invade even part of Ukraine. Uh, so... Biden's response, I think, is very much like what Obama's was, frustration with Putin, frustration with his lying, uh, but unable to um, actually stop or kind of uh, rein in or box in uh, Putin. And that's the dilemma. Uh, Biden has already said that um, they're not going to use U.S. troops in Ukraine. So positioning forces, somewhere like possibly 8,500 uh, forces and bringing NATO forces to the border of Ukraine will do no good unless they're going to actually threaten to use them. Mm -hmm. You know, they brought in military aid, there's uh, into Ukraine, economic aid into Ukraine. Um, but the alternatives, if, if Russia actually invades, and I'm not quite sure what Biden means by invasion, is to do this uh, amorphous um, type of sanctions. And this is the problem, is that uh, as Russia and um, the United States and European um, uh, countries kind of do this dance, they are running out of options outside of combat. 
So if there actually are sanctions, it's going to be economic. And those are going to not probably be that, uh, they're not going to impact Russia um, immediately or as forcefully as the United States wants. If mm -hmm. anything, the sanctions that they're going to put down, um, kind of broad sanctions on banks, possibly trying to take Russia off of SWIFT, that is the bank transactions, are going to hurt everyday Russians the most. Um, and that's the question. It's kind of this moral dilemma. Does is that what um, the United States and NATO and the the European countries want? Hmm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Twitter or Facebook and put comments there. Uh, let's start with Robert in Detroit. Robert, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, I'm just saying that with um, 100,000 troops versus maybe 8,000 U.S. troops, uh -huh. these acts of aggression and the history of Crimea, the invasion over there, why do we need to wait until an invasion I think we should immediately seize all Russian assets, especially for oligarchs, and um, have embargoes on all luxury items. Hmm. Uh, Robert, that's a different way to go for sure. Uh, I really appreciate the, the 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 call and the and the, the the comment and suggestion there, Aaron. Why not be more aggressive? I suppose with this, and and as Robert points out, it's not necessarily aggression through military. It's it's the economic side uh, of it that uh, that he would like to see us do. Sure. So uh, there are two reasons not to do that. The first is if the United States imposes uh, further economic sanctions before the before Russia actually invades, then that basically plays into the Kremlin's rhetoric that it's not Russia that's increasing tensions, it's the West that is bringing troops in, et cetera, that if they impose sanctions now, then that's basically going to cut out cut off the diplomatic channel. So tomorrow, um, Russia is supposed to meet with the United States, France, uh, Ukraine, um, I think that's it, uh, in Paris to kind of uh, further these discussions for the diplomatic uh, maneuvers. And if the United States did that, that would essentially end diplomatic um, kind of the diplomatic path and Russia might then actually invade. The other thing is that the United States has already imposed broad sanctions on Russian oligarchs. They can expand it, but that only goes so far. There are limited, um, there are limited measures that economic sanctions can do at this point. Uh, again, Robert, thanks for the call and the really provocative suggestions. Uh, let's go to, to John in Oak Park. John, what's on your mind? Yeah, thank you, Stephen. I was listening to a YouTube lecture by a Soviet scholar who posited that uh, promises were made to Gorbachev as uh, terms for bringing down the, the wall in Berlin, that NATO would not expand in any uh, way towards Russia. So I'm wondering if um, Putin is, a, is offended that this promise is being violated, and is there a promise if there's no longer a Soviet Union? Great question, uh, John. Uh, Aaron, what's the answer? John's exactly right. This was uh, done actually in the 90s that NATO promised Russia that it would not take one step uh, to the east, and then it promptly broke that uh, by um, basically bringing in uh, troops, positioning troops in the Baltics and Bulgaria and Romania. Uh, there are missiles in Ukraine, that there was this flirtation with uh, with Georgia. And this is one of the things that Putin uh, has said repeatedly, uh, that he wants the West to actually uh, live up to this promise. So yes, that's exactly right. And But that promise was made before the dissolution, really, of, uh, of, of the Soviet Union. And isn't it that the former republics now want to be part of the West. They want to be part of NATO. Does that change that equation in any way? Well, it was kind of into the 90s and into the post-Soviet uh, the post-Soviet era as well. Uh -huh. uh, but um, yeah, this is, I mean, this is the, it was, it was a promise that was never exactly written down. So it, and it was never actually um, s signed. So uh, it's something that Russia has gone back to, but yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, can we actually stop uh, Bulgaria um, from uh, moving uh, kind of 
uh, wanting the NATO alliance? Uh, yeah, this is this is exactly the question. Yeah. Uh, let's quickly take Anthony in Southwest Detroit. Anthony, I got about a minute left, but uh, go ahead. Yeah, quickly, Stephen, you know, you keep saying if there was a Russian invasion, you'll say, well, maybe there already was in Crimea. Well, I kind of, you know, discounts what happened in 2014, where uh, our own U.S. personnel supported uh, what many call a fascist coup in Ukraine. And they kind of the people in Crimea were not having it and they'd rather be with Russia. So that all aside, I find it hard to believe that Russia is aggressing loading up troops in their own country. Tell me why the head of the German Navy had to resign the other day. He spilled the beans. He said they don't want to invade. They're not going to. Mm. The EU, the NATO, and the UN have not pulled out their embassy personnel. Mm. And we're we're arming paramilitaries and pouring in weaponry into Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, Anthony, again, thanks for the call and the, and the comments. Aaron, what's, what's your response? So uh, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, the United States, so there's this rumor that the United States is uh, funding paramilitaries in Ukraine and building up chemical weapons. There's no basis of fact in that. Uh, That's the first thing. The second thing is that the revolution in Ukraine 2013 to 2014, while there were some uh, fascist elements, it was largely a West-leaning democratic revolution. Um, So I would would counter some um, some of those ideas uh, likewise, in 2014, when um, the rebels in eastern uh, Ukraine, um, the Donbass, Luhansk, rebelled, they were supported by the by the Russian military first through technology, and then advisors, and then regular uh, Russian troops. So it's it's much more complicated mm-hmm. um, than kind of this Western aggression. Okay, Aaron Reddish, always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining. My pleasure. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when I'm going to talk with with author Rachel Angelie about her book, Rust Belt Femme. It's about what it means to love a place that doesn't always love you back, something you might know a little bit about here in Detroit. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.